We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. Have you ever wondered if it's truly possible to balance environmental stewardship with the pace of modern development? It's a dilemma many land managers wrestle with, and if you do, you're going to really love hearing my guest this week. He is Albert Marshall Sr., a respected Mi'kmaq elder from Eskasoni First Nation in Nova Scotia. Now approaching his mid-80s, he continues to advocate for preserving the very lands that sustain us— land that he says was his classroom while growing up. Here is our conversation. And joining us now from Eskasoni First Nation in Unamagi, or Cape Breton, is Elder Albert Marshall. Good morning to you, Albert. Good morning, Richard. It's excellent to have you uh, back for our second attempt after our first crack didn't work out too well with the technology, so I appreciate your patience. Thank you very much. For those of our listeners across the country or even internationally who aren't familiar with Eskasoni or Unamagi, can you give us a brief description of where you're at? But I do reside in a community called Eskasoni here in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. Eskasoni was or was one of the biggest Mi'kmaq reserves, approximately 5,000 people here. And Eskasoni was actually one of the two communities. When the, when the federal government decided to initiate what they, what they called centralization, but really it was forced relocation in which they burned all the, all the other communities and, and forced people to converge on these two communities. Eskasoni was one of them, in which, you know, very little land base was increased, but we had a huge influx of, of people. So whatever little, whatever little land that would have been available at the time, people could somehow, you know, self-sustain sustain themselves with a little bit of land. But when you have an influx of people coming in, every, every, every available land had to be used for, for residential or housing. So people could no longer uh, use the land to supplement their, their food or their living. And even now, I mean, Eskasoni has a as now as an area of eighty seven hundred acres, but yet seventy percent of seventy percent of that is in our watershed, and the other twenty percent is steep slopes, which would be very very expensive to develop. So in all, we only have ten percent, which is eight hundred and seventy acres, for five thousand people. That watershed, the the Bredore Lakes, is quite exceptional too, isn't it? Yeah. But what but what, what, what I'm thinking what we're worried about is the watershed up, up on the land. That 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 we don't that we don't want to disturb that because that's where that's where that's our source of water. But Bordeaux Lakes themselves as well, you know, it has been the lifeline, not just for the people that live in, on, on the shores of the Bordeaux Lakes, which is five five native communities. Eskisoni, member two, Chapel Island or Bordeaux Wawagama uh, and Waikagama uh, and 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 um, Nyanza or or, or um, near near Bedektir. So all these communities were actually living 
and, and, and getting their supplements and their needs from the Bador Lakes. But of late, Bador Lakes is having a lot of problems because uh, Bador Lakes is a very unique system. The, the salinity is lower, temperature is higher, and it does not have the regular flushing out privileges like any inlet. As a matter of fact, scientists tell us today that uh, it takes approximately 42 years before a complete exchange can occur. And that means, of course, any, any, any contaminants that go into the lake, they do stay here for a long time. And, you know, initially, Bador Lakes was set up uh, for, for, for uh, some species. There were 25 other species that would come into the lakes to spawn and to raise their young. But now, uh, Bador Lakes are practically, you know, uh, not dead, but not far from it. There's very, very, very few, very little fishing in, in the lakes now because of land use activities and so on. Like you, our listeners are, are deeply interested in the land and its potential within indigenous communities. As they take back control of their land from the government of Canada, what environmental issues do you think they should be concerned about or at least doing some studying on? Well, in my humble opinion, I think we have to factor the fact that we have been disconnected from our land for so long. And to get a true picture of it at this juncture, we would have to, we have to, we would have to request a, what I would, what I would call ecological audit. Which would which would tell us or indicate to us the, the state of our the state of our environment area at this point because of uh, land use activities that have impacted the, uh, the the well-being of those lands that that's that's the approach I think that 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 has to be taken and 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 still and all in our humble opinion without displacing anyone since the government is so slow and reluctant of adding more land to, the, to our communities. I think the, 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 um, the onus should be on us of uh, taking back or reclaiming at least the, this, the crown land, the, the provincial crown land. It's approximately close to a million acres here in Cape Breton. I think that's something that we should be really, really be concentrating and thinking about, taking over the taking over the crown land, so as nobody will be displaced. And those claims can take a long, long time. Yes, because even now, the governments and the institutions across this country are are, are saying unceded Aboriginal territories. What's that? What does that mean? Is that is that is that an admission? That they don't have sovereignty over Nova Scotia or any of the, any of any of any part of Canada, parts that have not been surrendered or conquered. Sovereignty is an interesting concept because it it can it can mean and does mean different things to different people. How do you view it? Well, if I was to define that concept of of sovereignty, you have to sort of look at how do you acquire how do you become sovereign. There's only two ways that I know, surrender or conquest, which none of those things happened. The land, in my humble opinion, was, was illegally 
taken over without uh, because none of our treaties here in the Maritimes had dealt with any part of it. No land was ever ceded. The treaties we have here in the Maritimes were just how to how to coexist with each other between the newcomers and, and the and the Mi'kmaqs here. The peace and friendship treaties. Yes. So there was no land. There was no mention of of, of land being lost or taken away from us. As a matter of fact, um, you know that, that was that was stressed that we will we will we will we will have the opportunity to continue using the land as we, as we have been using it for centuries. But of course, that did not happen when we were forced into this, when, when we were forced into these little parcels of land. And now, um, since we can't no longer supplement our living from the land, we become so, solely dependent upon some kind of a social programming. There are two concepts that I'd like you to touch on during our, our chat today, Albert. The first is two-eyed seeing. And I wonder if you might explain that for our listeners. Well, see, two-eyed seeing, first of all, uh, I believe, initially it was also referred to as looking at everything from another perspective. But 25 years ago, it became incumbent upon us. Well, you know, I think, you know, it'd be much more expedient if we can somehow coin it. So we choose two eyes because each and every one of, each and every one of us have two eyes. And in our case here, I, as an Aboriginal man, I see everything for my Aboriginal men. So it became incumbent upon us to, to coin it in that, in that way. And two I seen, of course, in our understanding, is a, is a guiding principle as to how you, how you go through life, how you conduct yourself while you are here. Yes, that concept gives you the, gives you the privilege to utilize and to use the gifts from the Creator. But the greatest component of it, of course, is that it reminds you over and over again that you don't have the right to compromise the ecological integrity of the area. And of course, we have to factor now, no one has the right to compromise the cleansing capacity of the system. And most, and most importantly, regularly on a daily basis, you're reminded that your actions, every action you take on her, always has to be in harmony with nature. And with those guiding principles, I believe it was much more expedient for the, for the Mi'kmaq people to live in balance and harmony with nature because, because of this constant reminder, constant reaffirmation of what their responsibilities are. And in that, and in that, in, in that inference as well, you know, you're also constantly reminded by the elders, by telling you and reminding you, nature has rights, humans have responsibilities. So this, to me, then has to be a fundamental principle of how hey, each and every one of us should live while we are here. But unfortunately, we're the only group of people in this hemisphere that have sometimes somehow maintained that, that sense of responsibility and try to practice it and invoke it as much as we can. But that's, but that's coming to next to impossible because that inherent responsibility extends just beyond words. It's got to require actions. And some of these actions that are being taken by our people, 
you know, they, they, they're going to they, they're going to be suffering so many so many injustices by the police. Can you share some examples of that? Well, I mean, you take uh, what what happened when martial decision was rendered. The four actually were ramming those little small small boats or canoes in the water, and 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 uh, you know the history goes on, in which. DFO and the RCMP have been used as a strong arm for the federal government on, under, these, under these agencies like DFO, DNR, in which we don't have a, a say yet. We're the ones that are trying to maintain the, the integrity of it. But, but I have to say, though, at this juncture that 25, 30 years ago was different than what it is now in which now there's a lot, there's lot more Nova Scotians are beginning to see that, yes, we have exhausted the carrying capacity of the system. We have exhausted the cleansing capacity of the system. And we must be put near the point of no return. So people in general are getting, getting concerned now. When I, when I look at what happened at, at Alton Gas there in Stuyak, there was a lot of people there, Aboriginal and, 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 and many, many more. And because and, and, and through their effort, that mining company eventually said, you know, this is this is this this is ridiculous. I can I can't operate that way. So he, he withdrew his permit for him for, for them to pump the natural gas into these salt caverns. So these are just many, many. And New Brunswick is the same. People are trying to People are trying to stop uh, spraying, spraying the forest. So, you know, the list goes on and on and on. The concept of two-eyed seeing, though, also incorporates a belief that there can be some advantages in Western views and in well, modern science. So, so there's a balance there that has to well, be found. The two-eyed seeing, of course, you know, uh, I, 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 I have as many teachings is that you know, take the best as an Aboriginal person. Take the best from where whatever the Eurocentric system or the mainstream system has brought forth. And I, as a Mi'kmaq person, I have the best from from what has been brought forth by my ancestors and my generations. And 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 the onus is is on me then, is to apply those two best ways of methodologies or best ways of knowing. So then I could be much more effective then of exercising my inherent responsibilities. Not just to be the eye, the ear, and the voice from Mother Earth, but if at any time I see an action is required, then I, I, I am obligated to take that action because we don't see our natural world as something separate from us. We see us as being very much part and parcel of it. And therefore, we, we, we look upon it as a family. And no difference if any of your family members is, is suffering or needs help. You have to be there. We have to be there ASAP. And, and if, even if you have to give up your own life to save that person, you will. So this is the in-depth understanding of, what, of, of our inherent responsibilities. We don't separate us from we don't separate us from our natural world. We are very much part and parcel of it. And through the language, we have words like all my relations. And which again reminds you how interconnected and interdependent we are with nature. And if nature needs help, we have to be right there. 
One of the other understandings or concepts that you've talked about when you travel abroad, and you might have to help me with the pronunciation of this, is Natugulim. Yeah, Natugulim, again, you know, is a, is a concept in which you know that you have the privilege to use the gifts of the Creator. But again, it's also a, a reminder that uh, of your responsibilities as to how you conduct yourself. And, 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 and it also reminds you more, more, more emphasizing that responsibility even when your action is not in harmony with nature. Then you have something that no other creature has, and that's the cognitive mind. Use that cognitive mind as to how you can go about mitigating that harm that you have done to the Creator, to, to, to our creation. So these, these words are not just triggers, but these, 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 these concepts of words were very much uh, so, so profound and so overarching of constantly being reminded of what our responsibilities are. I'm curious to know if you ever get invited by energy companies or mining companies or develop or developers generally who are interested in what you have to say. Well, well, occasionally. I mean, like not 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 the uh, not the not the industry, but the agencies. For example, uh, we just had a a conversation with the uh, with with the forestry sector. And uh, my concern, of course, is that I like to remind people that when I was born, there was two billion people in this in this world. Now today we're, to, we're close to eight billion, and especially here in the maritime, especially here in Cape Breton, or even in Nova Scotia, economic opportunities are very few and far. And as these populations are grown. So people are going to be converging on, on these two major sources of life in which we all depend upon, the, the, the oceans and the, and, and, and the forest. Because to, to us, we see oceans and, 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 our, and our forest as, as our lungs, as our um, medicine chest, pantries. And they also control, they also act as our thermometer. And, 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 of course, again, it, it's our lungs. Because we understand, we have been taught that a, a good 40-year-old tree will generate enough oxygen for five people. Now, as we are eradicating the forest, you know, I wonder. I, I mean, we know we're, on, we're on, we know we're on a point of no return. But now it's been expedited because... Socioeconomics becomes a priority over conservation. And that's the thing I think that needs to change before, before, we can, before we can really sit down collectively and begin to craft the kind of a narrative we will need. You mentioned forests. I'm not sure if you heard the recent announcement about the, uh, the donation and the purchase of land here in Nova Scotia by a family and gifting a lot of forest, some of it old growth, to the Ulnaweg Education Center. Yes, the Wind Horse Farm. Exactly. And you know, and 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 I think you know, um, this, this you know, I have to say with great admiration for Jim and Margaret Dresner, 
after after overall love of nature and ensuring that the work that they have been doing and maintaining the integrity of that area will always be in or hopefully in in, 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 in perpetuity. And and you know, it's to the it's to the kindness of these people that now we have access to that parcel of land in which, you know, hopefully the work that they have initiated, the work that they have demonstrated, will live on. Chris Gugu, the CEO of Olneweg, has said there are many uses planned for that site, and one of them being a, a great opportunity to bring youth in and connect them with the environment and to share important stories. You seem to really like working with young people. Well, you see, the overarching problems we're facing at this, at this very moment, of course, is we all have been disconnected disconnected from our natural world, which has impacted us in so many different ways. And if we're going to, and if we're going to be, if we're going to be continuously revitalizing of who we are, especially our languages, we cannot do the, we cannot do our, we cannot recover our languages just through theory. They have to be done in the land because our languages come from the land. And now to, to um, help people to heal in some of the some of the ways in which they have been impacted, have been disconnected from nature, like the spatial domain of Earth. We can you can again use that parcel of land to help our young people to reconnect to nature, not just to not just to not just to look at it as an as as a commodity, but look at it as a classroom, as a medicine chest, as a and so on. You know what I mean? So without, without land, that reconnection could never be complete. Well, now that we're talking about children, um, it's a nice segue to what we were talking about just before we started the recording, and you mentioned that you're actually working on a children's book. Can you explain more? Well, you see, why there has to be an urgency on children? Demographically, I don't know how many people realize that our populations are extremely young, and we do recognize and acknowledge that majority of our young population have been denied any, any, any connection of who they are. And it also deprived the people in my age category of exercising their responsibility of passing on their life experiences and, and, and so that these oncoming generations will be prepared not just to carry on of who they are as Mi'kmaq people, but also to ensure that their culture will always be practicing in a, in a in an appropriate way, like it has been, and that is how to live in how to always live in harmony with nature and with one another. There's a lot of information too on the website of the Unamagi Institute of Natural Resources, and uh, I, I don't think we'll have time to talk a whole lot about that today. But I will include a link in the show notes, Albert. So. Yeah. People can go read some of the background, and I think there are links, too, to some of the news stories that have been written about you, right? All I'm really hoping is that I am just, a, you know, first of all, let me apologize. I only know this much of who I am as a Mi'kmaq people, and to capture the essence of who we are, all our knowledge holders has to be included into this. So I'm, I, I'm trying to do the best of my ability to be the conduit of that knowledge that's, that's, been, that's been invested in me or given to me by my elders and ancestors.
We know you're held in a great deal of respect in your community and, and outside. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your time. And I know you've got people from Humber College waiting in the wings there to talk about the book project. So uh, we'll let you go. And please thank your daughter, Michelle, for helping with the technology. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. Thanks to Albert's daughter, Michelle Marshall Johnson, for helping with the recording at their end. Always a challenge when Wi-Fi is iffy at best. She was a huge help. I mentioned the Unamagi Institute for Natural Resources. I'll put the link in the episode description. One of my favorite articles there, Did Eels Change the Course of History? It is a great read. This podcast is produced by the Lands Advisory Board and its technical team at labrc.com. I'm your host, Richard Perry. Thanks for listening.